Hey, my name is Jeremy. Welcome here. We're glad that you're together worshiping with us this morning. I don't know if it's your first time or you've been here forever. Either way, warm, warm welcome. This is December, December 2nd, and so we're starting out our Advent or basically our Christmas series, the time in which we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. That's what Advent means. If you're wondering about that weird Latin word, it basically just means coming. Right now, like today, December 2nd, 2018, we are in between the first Advent and the second. So right now we're celebrating the second or the first Advent, but we're looking forward to the second Advent where Christ will come again. So there's two comings. There's one and two, and we're in between them right now. Right now we're celebrating the first, looking forward to the second. So I have a thought for you this morning, actually more than one thought, but the first thought is this. As I imagine if you are a grandpa or a grandma, an uncle, an aunt, a big brother, a big sister, son or daughter, whatever you might happen to be, that probably there's someone in your life for whom you've begun to think about, what will I get them for Christmas? What gift will I give? I'm going to be doing some gift giving. Amazon has a list. Kohl's has a list. Everybody tells me what I should buy. What is it I actually should get? And I don't have any answers for you that this morning, unless you're asking about me personally, in which case, just um, but I think as I think about gift giving, what we all want as the givers is basically the same thing. What we want is to be able to have that wow moment when the person receives what we're presenting to them. We want them to receive the gift and all of a sudden just you can see it on their face or in their body language or the tears come or the joy or the screaming, the jumping up and down, the running out of the room, the whatever, the big reaction, the wow moment where they receive it and they're just overwhelmed and we're like, yeah, that was the right gift. And as people who are sinful, we actually know how to give good gifts, which is actually quite amazing is that we we can love another person to such an extent that we begin to know them, we begin to understand them, and we see that, okay, this person is like this, and therefore this is what they need, or this is what they desire, or this is what would benefit them, and therefore I'm going to go to great lengths, I'm going to work really hard in order that I can come up with something that will fit them just right. And in so doing, our desire is that that recipient will receive it and just jump into our arms. They'll jump up and down. They'll be excited. They'll jump into our arms. But what would happen if we give that gift and it really is the great gift and we spend all kinds of time, all kinds of effort, all kinds of money, all kinds of everything on it. And they're just like, oh, wow. So I'll use my water bottle. Now, this is the ultimate thing for me this morning, water. Um, And I'm just like, wow, wow, wow. I turn around and I go away. And the gift giver is left standing there like, hello, anybody home? Thank you would be nice. I mean, I'm glad you like that beautiful water bottle or whatever it might be, but might you respond in some sort of way to me? Like, I love you and I desire for you to be happy, but 
if all you see is the gift, then you're really missing the reason I gave it. If all you see is, if all you focus in on, on is the gift itself, then you completely miss the reason that I gave it. You see, I gave that gift to you so that it would drive you to me. I gave that gift to you to communicate my love. I gave that gift to you to show you how much I understand you, how deeply I appreciate you, and how just incredibly much I want your best. Like, I desire for you to thrive. I desire for you to do well, and so much so that I went to all this link. I want you to see that. And if all you do is you just stare at that one thing, man, you've missed it. Now, here's a really funny thing that I'm going to say about Christmas this morning. As I go through all of that, I have to be careful so I don't step off the stage and also step into heresy. I think heresy would be worse than stepping off the stage. But here's here's the fine line I'm trying to dance, and it's this. At Christmas time, I'm speaking now to Christians. I don't know where you're at. You could be in a lot of different spots. It's okay if you're not quite there yet. But listen to what I have to say, Christians. If, if at Christmas time, we get it, if we understand, if we realize that Jesus is the gift, and we're just like, oh, Jesus, 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 and then we turn away, we've missed something. We really have. In fact, we've missed the whole reason for the gift. Today we're going to look at a very familiar passage of scripture. One that we've probably, if you're in church for any length of time, you've heard. You've probably even memorized. You can say it asleep or with your eyes blindfolded. And yet, in this text, what we so frequently glance over is the reason for the gift and what we're supposed to do in response. So today, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John 3.16. It's a very familiar passage, John 3.16. That one that someone who's at the football game is holding up behind the goalpost going like this. That's the one, John 3.16. How did they get that job anyways? I'd like that job. <laughs> Sign me up. No, this is this is where God wants me. Here we are, John 3, 16. Are you ready? We're also going to have a, a slide of these words up on the board. John 3, 16 through 18. It says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because they have not believed in the name Of the only Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Our sermon series for this Advent or this Christmas season is called this. Here's a picture of it. It's called The Giver. And the reason for that is this, is that I want you to understand that John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave. God the Father is the author of Christmas. Jesus is the gift, and that is very special, and it's so special we shouldn't ever, ever miss that. The enormitude of the gift is beyond all reckoning, and yet it was the Father who gave. God the Father is driving this whole thing. Christmas is his idea. It, in fact, if you will, isn't Jesus's idea in the economy of the Trinity. I know they're all equal in one, but if you break them down into their individual roles, it is God the Father who gave. He is the one who is driving the idea of the incarnation or God the Son becoming flesh. God the Father is pushing Christmas forward. So what am I trying to say to you today? What am I trying to say to you through this whole series? As we celebrate Christmas, we will definitely celebrate Jesus. And there's probably other things that you'll celebrate as well, whether they're family or food or good times or gift giving or whatever. And you always hear the Christian message, hey, don't forget the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for the season. Yes, but it is God who gave. God the Father drove home Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave. And what happens is this, as you study scripture and you begin to pull that thought into your mind, you actually recognize that he is the author of salvation. It's not just Jesus, 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 happy, yay, go, lucky Jesus. But it's God the Father who's driving the entire macro plan of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That this whole salvific purpose of creation to bring glory to God is driven by the Father. That's why it's so beautiful. Here in just a moment, we'll walk through a couple things about this plan. But the first thing I want to communicate is just that it's God's plan. It's His plan. Number one, if you're taking notes, I don't have a structure on a slide today, but if you're taking notes, first point to note is that it is God's plan. The first point is that it's God's plan. It's God the Father's plan. The Father sent the Son. Second thing I want you to see is this, is the motivation for the plan, a motivation for the plan. I think this comes out pretty clearly in John three sixteen, And what it says is that for God so loved the world now in english we jump on this world this word and it it means a lot of different things it's just kind of a connector we could assign meaning to it based on the words around it but in this sense what it's saying here is actually two different things we typically jump to he loved how much he loved so much that so 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 very much but it also means this is how thusly this is how god loved so he loved so much that he gave his son but he loved in what way did he loved he loved by sending his son so what happens is this is that a love true love moves us to action love motivates us to do something when we say love we typically think of okay you know earthly romantic ooey gooey 
Twitter in my heart, fancy feelings, yay, excitement. But what this is saying is that this higher love, this greater love, this amazing thing moves beyond just affectionate feelings for something that brings me benefit, but in fact drives him to save. That he is motivated by this self-sacrificial, self-giving love in such a way that there is an object that is completely worthless and undesirable that gives him no benefit that he goes after. That's very different from me pursuing my wife. My wife is beautiful. My wife is wonderful. My wife makes my life better. Yes, I love her, but not in the same way that God loved me. All of those things I just said about my wife, I, God cannot say about me. Oh, I saved this person because they're beautiful. I saved this person because they're wonderful. I saved this person because they make their, my life better. No! It's just the opposite. There is nothing lovely in me whatsoever. And yet, for whatever reason, unbeknownst to me, in the infinite mind of God, before the foundation of the world, he decided to save me. That's incredible. Anyone who truly believes in God's eternal plan understands there is no reason for pride whatsoever. If we think we are chosen, if we think we are called, if we think we are something special because God decided upon us, then we have truly misunderstood the message of Scripture. Scripture says before we ever did anything, God decided. Look at this plan. It's incredible. Why am I going so elaborate into it? It's because here's the thing. If, if you understand the gift, then you're really motivated to go after the giver. In other words, it's one thing to get a gift and be like, oh, thanks. And you turn around and walk away. But what if you receive that gift and you turn to that person? You're like, wow, this is awesome. And then they proceed to tell you all about it. Now, I'm not, I'm not necessarily the best at this, but I've heard some guys in our congregation Plan like big anniversaries. All right, listen up, men. If you're looking down at your Bible, this is time to look up or start taking notes, right? I mean, these guys that plan these things, they do some amazing stuff. They find their wife's best friend from way back when and where they like to meet for coffee and what show she would love to go to and everything that would make her world perfect. They don't tell her about it. They plan it like a year in advance. They've got the Broadway musical tickets sitting in the safe deposit box. Everything is lined up until the week of and all of a sudden they're like, hey, would you like to go for a walk? Oh, well, sure. Why is that? And along the way, they discover all these things, the tickets and the ring and the friends. And they're like, ah, you know, just amazing gift. And then they realize, wow, you did all of this for me. How did you think? Well, I knew this about you and I knew this about you and I knew this about you. If I knew if I could contact them and find them and do this and do that. And they go into the elaborate detail of the scheme of their plan. And what that does is not lift them up, but it communicates to the other how much they love them. So too in God and scripture, we sometimes approach this verse, John 3.16, and we think it's just a conversion piece. Like, okay, now do you believe? All right, good. Boom, we're saved. We're off. Yay, yippee, done. But the reality of what this actually does is it's not just a succinct, neat, tight summary of something that's special, but it begins to divulge this incredible plan that rages throughout eternity. That before the foundation of the world, God chose us 
for some reason completely unbeknownst to us. Yet in his love, he comes up with this crazy way of doing things that we would have never expected. And it should just blow us away and drive us to jump up and down and finally to land in his arms. This is John 3.16. This is the reason for Christmas. What are you trying to say here, Pastor? What I'm trying to say is this, is look, why did God give? We said God gave. Why did God give? Well, God gave out of a desire to save and draw his beloved to himself. This compelled him to give his only son. God's desire to save and draw his beloved to himself compelled him to give his only son. It wasn't just that he was receiving some benefit. It wasn't that he found us attractive. It wasn't that we would make his life better. God was completely satisfied in and of himself and had no need for creation or humanity whatsoever. He had perfect harmony, community, and love all there in the Trinity. There is no need for creation or humanity, especially not for redemption. And yet... Because of his great grace, because of his incredible love, God decides to condescend to save sinners. So what is the motivation then for his plan? The motivation is love, but not love like we think of it, this completely different form of love. So number one, God gave. Number two, the motivation. The motivation is love. Number one, God gave. Like, for God so loved the world that he gave. Don't miss that. Number two... What is the motivation? Well, he loved, but not like we do, in a completely different way. Number three, let's look at the greatness of his plan. Now let's look into the elaborate detail of what he did. When Paul receives this gift of salvation, Paul is like that person who's had their wedding anniversary planned out from long ago and just realizing it. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Sorry, verses three through, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, Paul says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can't believe you did this for me. Plus, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him so long ago, before the foundation of the world, that we should be taken from this sinful and yucky place to be holy and blameless before him. Why did he do this? In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And this all ends in that jumping up and down and landing in his arms to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Man, this plan is huge. It goes back. So far before the beginning of time, before I was even a thought in my mother's mind, before Adam and Eve ever existed, before God hung the planets in place, there was this plan. God already knew before he made the world that he would crucify his son. God already knew before he made the world that he would crucify his son. Salvation is not a, oh no, oops. Now what do I do? They've really messed up. Last ditch effort. I guess we'll go to plan B. No, no, no. From the very beginning, 
Even before sin entered the world, God knew what he would do. He would send his son and crucify him for the salvation of the world. Jesus plays on this just a few verses earlier. We just read 16 through 18, which is what we so often do. But if we do, it's funny, we often miss the best stuff that becomes right before, right after that verse. And this is this, in John 14, Jesus goes all the way back to Moses, thousands of years, at least 6,000 since when Jesus was uh, on the earth, from 30 AD back to Moses was at least 6,000 years, possibly more, depending on how you date it. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here is the greatness of the plan. Jesus is beginning to unveil all the steps that happened. And so in the next couple moments, I want to show you just a couple of those steps, actually three. I want to show you, so we've talked, we said God is the giver, number one. We've said the motivation for the plan is love, number two. And now we, now we're looking at number three, the greatness of the plan. So number one, God is the giver, number two, the, motivation of the plan and number three the greatness and under the greatness i'd like to show you these three things one is the pre-planned thing which i've got into with ephesians i'll show you with moses this is pre-planned that jesus's exaltation is pre-planned number two under the greatness of the plan i want to show you how qualitatively different it is it is qualitatively different And number three, I want to show you how you experience it presently, how it is presently experienced. So number one, I've showed you how it's pre-planned with the Ephesians thing, but let me show you the exaltation piece. This is really interesting. What happens is this, is Jesus makes this allusion to Moses and the snake in the wilderness. And if you've read that passage, you're familiar with what's going on there. I'll just summarize it for you briefly. Essentially, the children of Israel were wandering in the desert. And um, they do what most people do when they don't like their circumstances. And they begin to complain. Like, enough of this. We're tired. It's hot. We're bored. Why can't we? You know. And eventually, God's like, hold on. Don't you understand? I just saved you from slavery. Let me wake you up a little bit. And the way that he does that is he sends snakes. And these vipers come in and they bite the people and they make them sick and lots of folks die. And of course, when all of a sudden we're suffering, what do we do? We say, oh God, please help. Wait, never mind. I didn't mean that. Actually, I do want you. (laughs) Please, Lord, will you help? And God in his grace responds to our cries even when they're as a result of discipline and punishment. And what happens is he tells Moses, hey, take the snake wrap it around a stick but as you know if it's a snake it's going to slither down so you got to put a cross post on that stick so the snake stays on it you see those signs in medicine and other places today as a sign of healing and the snake is wrapped around the stick and Moses holds it up and whoever looks at the stick is cleansed or healed from their snake bite well what's going on there well it's not a magical snake and it's not a magical stick but just like in the New Testament God has said that those who by grace through faith believe in his provision for their sins will be saved. That's what's happening right there. Those who believe what God said, that if you look to this, 
You'll be cleansed of your sin. You'll be forgiven and you'll be saved from the snake bite are saved. And so those who look up to that cross, that snake on the cross, are cleansed and healed. Now, why would anyone not look up to that cross? I don't know. If you're bit by a snake, it seems you'd want some healing. But yet, we got to believe because there are people who died that some people didn't. Why? Are human beings that way? I don't know. Sometimes we are so stubborn and sinful that we simply will not admit our need for a Savior. Here in the Old Testament, here today. In the New Testament, what happens? We begin to see the unveiling of this plan of God. And we understand that, oh, from the very beginning, actually, we've been snake bit. Haven't we? In the garden, we assume the snake, if you will, is Satan. And he comes and poisons all of humanity such that we are sick and we are sinful and we are dying. And God in his grace has provided a provision, one that will be lifted up. That if we look to that one by grace through faith and believe on his provision, we will be forgiven of all of our sins and we will be healed. This is the plan from the very beginning. Surprise! God's been hinting at it all along. It's kind of been a secret to you. And all of a sudden, when Jesus is lifted up, everything is revealed and this mystery is made known. Paul said, wow, look at this. I can't believe it. There he is. There's the long-awaited Messiah. We thought Messiah would come in and do away with Rome. But what we realize is the purpose of the Messiah is to be exalted. Well, how is he exalted in his humiliation? He's being lifted up. In fact, Jesus' life and death and resurrection is one continual state, if you will, of being lifted up. How is that? Well, he descends to earth, but then he's lifted up on a cross. And then he's lifted up out of the grave. And then he's lifted up even higher than that to be seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And the whole purpose of the church right now is to do the exact same thing, and that's to lift him up. His life, death, incarnation, burial, resurrection, it's all one continual state of exaltation. That's why Jesus, in explaining this plan to him, to Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, says it like this, verse 14 and 15. He says, as Moses lifted up, the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here's a purpose for humanity, to bring glory to God and lift him up. Jesus points to the Father, the Son points to the Father, and the Son's people point to the Son. The greatness of this plan is that it is pre-planned and it's always been about exalting Jesus But it's also different. It's qualitatively different. When you receive a gift, one of the interesting things about receiving a gift is how it's processed. Like if somebody, for example, in your life has everything they need, then often you don't want to get them a trinket. If your children's rooms are overflowing with junk and you just want to clear it out and get rid of it, you're like, I'm not buying you more junk. If your great aunt so-and-so has been collecting bells since she was the time she was four, and she has 10,000 bells and you have no idea what you're going to do with those things when it's time for her to downsize, you're not going to get her another bell. 
And so what do you do? You might get her a fruit basket or some nuts or cheese, something that she can consume and it'll go away. (laughs) You don't have to clean it up afterwards. That's a good gift. We get gifts for different reasons. We get gifts that are consumed instantly. We get gifts that are played with. We get gifts that are toys that wear out and break. But all of our gifts are a lot different than this gift. This thing that God gave, it is qualitatively different because it is something that we receive now, but only experience in part. And we don't fully experience it until the future. And so while we have this gift, we don't fully have this gift. And that's a strange thing to understand. I'd like to ask this question. I got another sermon coming up in a minute or two. I need some help. I couldn't think of any illustrations for this. If you were to say, here's something that you have now, that you don't fully experience it. I'm asking you, what would that be? And help me out. Just shout it out. Uh, Pastor, I think this is like... Okay, tickets. Tickets to anything. A concert, an event, whatever. You have them, but you haven't experienced it. That's good. I might write that down. We'll see. I'll cite you later. All right. Good. What's that? Retirement plan. Exactly right. You have it sitting there. And you're hopeful that it won't go, but you want to experience it later as it grows and grows and grows and does what you want it to do, okay? What else? Oh, no. She did say that. You already have one? She said a casket. Okay. Okay, I got it. I got it. So maybe you prepaid your burial or funeral expenses. That's a nice thing for you to do for your loved ones. It's considerate. But that's one example. Tickets, retirement plan, casket. Yes, ma'am. A vacation. Okay, that is neat. Because in a vacation, you could be thinking about it like, ooh, yay, we get to go there. And you're starting to get joy from it. Even though you haven't experienced it yet. I like that one. I'm going to keep that one. Let's go with that vacation. So in this way, salvation, although this is obviously everything falls short, is like a vacation. Because you experience the joy of it now, and yet you haven't experienced the fulfillment of it yet to come. Here's what happens in John chapter 3 verse 14. Jesus keeps going, you know, he says, just as Moses is lifted up, the son must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, here's the thing, eternal, we hear that word and we go, oh, got it, eternal. That's like forever, like the life I'm going to have in the future goes on and on and on and doesn't end. Eh, there's anything like this life, I'm not sure that I want that. <laughs> I don't know, eternal. I don't know. That's not so great. But what that actually, not only does it refer to duration, but what that actually means is it refers to quality. It's a qualitative difference. It's not just like this temporal life where everything decays and breaks and wears out and needs maintained and gets discouraged 
Gene, it never seems to end just the way we want it. That's now. That is temporary. That's the result of the fall. But the eternal is that which is qualitatively different. It is that supernatural, superabundant, super above and everything else life that you've always wanted. It is the perfect life. It is the good life. When we have a bad experience, sometimes we say to ourselves, oh man, that's just life. I don't like that. It's just life. No, actually that's not. Satan's lie is to tell you that that's life. Life right now is destroyed and messed up because of sin and death. But real life, eternal life, is not like that. Don't let the devil trick you. Eternal life is qualitatively different. Eternal life isn't in a constant state of decay. Eternal life is in a constant state of incredible improvement. Everything goes right. Everything goes well. It's eternal. It's perfect. It is the life of the age to come. Is how this Greek says it. We don't know how to translate it. We just say eternal life. But literally it's the life of the age to come. The age that is just right. The age that is perfect. The age that is good. The kingdom. The forever. John uses eternal life. The other gospels. The Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. They say the kingdom of God. These two are the same thing. It is that forever future state that is so much better than where we're at right now. It is the life of the age to come. Jesus says, look, this is the greatness of the plan. This is not a gift like any other gift you received. It's not like the chocolate covered nuts or the wine or the cheese or the meat that you eat it and it goes bad. That's what you expect. That's where moth and dust and everything corrupts and destroys. That's this life. What I'm giving you is the life for the age to come. Eternal life. It's different. So number one, it's pre-planned. This is what's so great about this plan. It's pre-planned. Number two, it's different. It's different than any gift you've ever received. And number three, it's to be presently experienced. How is that? Let me show you this verse one more time. I know this is like the third time we've seen it. I don't want you to miss this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may... What? What? Have eternal life. Like now. Like you get it. Dad, can I have a glass of milk? Yes. Where is it? You said you'd give it to me. Here it is. If you have something, you have it. When you get eternal life, John says, you receive it now. You begin to experience it even though the vacation hasn't arrived, even though the concert hasn't come, even though retirement isn't there yet. You can rejoice in it and you can celebrate it and you can enjoy it now. Because even greater than a 403B, even greater than a vacation, even greater than a concert, you know this gift will come to fruition. Concert might get canceled. The performer could get sick. Stock market could tank and everything goes bad. Vacation, it could rain. But heaven will last forever no matter what. You have a guaranteed hope. Sure and steadfast. Because of this gift. You can rejoice in it constantly. We rejoice in so many other things. And we want to and it's much easier. Because we see them. But this unseen gift. That's been pre-planned forever. It's so much better 
than anything you've ever imagined or given. It is qualitatively different. It demonstrates a love that's beyond any love we can imagine. It's not like ours. It's better. It's good. It's God. So we come to this Christmas. We say, what do we do? And, well, receive the gift. Receive the gift of eternal life. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Receive it. Don't reject it. I don't know why anyone wouldn't look up and be saved. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. Sometimes there's hurt. Sometimes there's hardness of heart. Sometimes there's intellectual objections. But for whatever reason you have, it's probably just an excuse not to admit your own need. And say, I am sinful and I am bitten by the snake and I am sick and I need help. And that's called pride. That's probably the real reason. Soften your hearts, repent, believe, receive the gift. And when you do, and don't just receive it, but realize, wow, what a gift. What a gift that, say this with me, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Father, we thank you and praise you for your eternal, your incredible, your amazing gift. Lord, let us receive it in the best way. Let us not reject it. Let us not look over it. Let us not run away with it, but let us begin to experience it even now as we love you and praise you and jump into your arms. God, cause us to celebrate not just the gift, but the giver as well. In Jesus' name, amen.